Hi, I'm your host, Kelly Joe, and this is the Nourished Motherhood Podcast, a show dedicated to bringing together the voices of motherhood and helping women connect with others and themselves through the power of sharing honest, vulnerable stories. Because every woman deserves to have a place where her voice is heard. We believe that supporting mothers is one of the healthiest things we can do for our society. There's a balance of beauty and grit to be found in every woman's story. And we're so honored you're here to listen, connect, and grow with us. Let's dive in. Hey friends, you are in for such a treat today. I had the privilege of sitting down with Lily Nichols, who's not only someone I consider to be one of my mentors, but is also making waves in the field of prenatal nutrition. Lily Nichols is a registered dietitian and nutritionist, certified diabetes educator, researcher, and author with a passion for evidence-based research. Drawing from current scientific literature and the wisdom of traditional cultures, her work is known for being research-focused, thorough, and unapologetically critical of outdated dietary guidelines. She is the author of two best-selling books, Real Food for Pregnancy and Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. Her course, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes, offers pregnant women a revolutionary, nutrient-dense, lower-carb approach for managing their gestational diabetes. Additionally, Lily co-founded the Women's Health Nutrition Academy that serves to educate doctors, dietitians, and nutritional therapists like myself. She is truly a wealth of knowledge. During our conversation, we unpack some of the myths around pregnancy nutrition and why conventional prenatal nutrition guidelines are outdated, how nutrition not only impacts mom, but also her child's long-term health, and so much more. This is such a great episode, especially if you're curious how to best fuel your body while pregnant and nourish your baby's health. And I'm so excited to get into this episode, but first, I want to spotlight today's sponsor. This episode is sponsored by one of my favorite prenatal supplements, Fullwell. I love recommending Fullwell's prenatal multivitamin to my clients because it gives your body amazing nutrients that boost your fertility, nourish your growing baby, and can even help you get back your energy and glow after your baby is born. Their prenatal has optimal evidence-based forms and doses of nutrients in an easy-to-tolerate formula, so it won't make you sick, and it's full of active bioavailable nutrients, including folate, vitamin B12, chelated minerals, magnesium, choline, and calcium, which are all really important for you and your baby. Fullwell exceeds current prenatal safety standards by using third-party independent testing for harmful contaminants such as heavy metals on every single batch produced, so you can trust it's going to be safe for you and your baby. I recommend you get on a prenatal three to six months before you start trying to conceive all throughout your pregnancy and as long as you're breastfeeding because you and your baby need those amazing nutrients. Visit www.nourishedmotherhood.com forward slash fullwell or click the link in the show notes and use the code NMCGIVE10 to get 10% off your first order. And with that, friends, let's dive into our amazing episode with Lily Nichols. All right. Hi, Lily. Welcome to the Nourish Motherhood podcast. I am so thrilled to have you here with us and to be getting to have this conversation. Seriously, I just want to extend such a huge thank you to you. I have so much gratitude for your work, for your dedication in the field of nutrition, specifically when it comes to women's health and prenatal nutrition. I've personally completed so many of my CEUs for my nutritional therapy certification through the Women's Health Nutrition Academy that you and Ayla Brommer started. And 
Seriously, I love how you're bringing your A game to the field of nutrition. And I really think women have been so underrepresented in the research and in prenatal care in general. And so there's so many gaps and really your work, it's cutting edge. I said that before we started recording, and I just think it's so true. And you're really giving women a framework and moms um, the ability to thrive at the root level. So Again, just thank you for being here. I'm kind of geeking out. Um, I consider you a mentor and just really excited for this conversation. So welcome. Thank you so much. What a kind welcome. <laughs> um, I would love to get started and just know what does your life look like? How many kids do you have? Because I know your mom. Can you just share with us what a daily life looks like for you guys right now? Sure. Um, yeah, I have two kids currently uh, five and two. Um, still nursing the, the two-year-old, although I, I think she's winding down. (laughs) I think we're both kind of winding down. So that's, that'll be good to transition into, uh, not being needed in that way at some point. Yeah. And my day-to-day is, uh, you know, I really intend to worked, worked hard over the past, you know, my whole career really to, to get towards just keeping my work to like a part-time schedule. Um, so it's always a bit of a push and pull between wanting to do all the kids stuff and then also having all of these career aspirations and just knowing, I mean, I'm just repeatedly reminded about how important this work is. So I have all sorts of things that I really want to do with limited bandwidth and time and childcare in order to accomplish those things. Um, but I try to just rest in the, you know, the gratitude that I can do a little bit of both and uh, try not to get (laughs) too lofty with my goals, Um, really try to keep it realistic so I don't get overwhelmed by the, you know, thousands of things that I want to get done. And, um, you know, I try to outsource things when I can. I'm not the best at outsourcing things. And I like doing a lot of it, you know, so it's hard. It's like, I like doing my work and doing my research and educating, but that takes a lot of time to do thoroughly. And I like being with my kids and I like making most of our food. And anytime I try to outsource that in different ways, it's like, uh, never perfect. So it's always that juggle for me, um, Mm -hmm. juggling both. Wow. Yeah. No, I think that's such a, for especially us who can work at home with our kids, it's like such a beautiful gift. And yet that tug and pull, like you were talking about, it's really hard. What you mentioned, like you've outsourced some things or, you know, try to stay in that place of gratitude. What are some things that have really helped you practically with kids so young to keep moving forward towards these goals and aspirations? Well, it's looked differently at different stages, right? So um, when I only had my son, I sort of eased back into work maybe around five or so months postpartum and quickly realized that that cannot be done without some form of childcare. Um, And my husband works full time so that, you know, he can help at certain times, but I really needed like time. Um, so we started with like some part-time in-home childcare, just like a few hours at a time. Um, I also hate pumping, so I didn't want to have to pump. So I'd nurse before (laughs) sometimes in the middle. And then after uh, I was kind of a voracious nurser and then I would get a lot of work done during nap times. Um, and he was a very baby that really needed to be held a lot. So I would 
you know, strap on the carrier, nurse him to sleep, uh, pull him back up, clip the carrier on. And, and that was my writing time. I just sit on a bouncy yoga ball to keep him asleep and, and write. That's really, that's actually how real food for pregnancy got written. Um, and as they get older, you know, you can get a little more time away and they get more independent and all of that with my second, just knowing, and you're in this stage right now of adjusting to two and yes. every kid has a different personality. Every family has different dynamics. Uh, it, you know, anytime that she was, a, my daughter was asleep, my younger one, it's like, I wanted to, to give the one-on-one time to my older one who really, really needed it. Right. So, so work time was, there was no getting work done during nap times, like, like, you know, business work done. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that was different. I wasn't able to juggle quite as much with two and I did need a little more childcare that time. I like gave myself a lot more time off, um, postpartum, just knowing like I wasn't going to be in a brain space to be doing a lot. And then all the COVID stuff hit. And so we lost like preschool, childcare, everything Gosh, gone. Right. So that sort of extended my maternity leave, um, much longer than I had originally anticipated, so at this point, at this age, we have, you know, part-time childcare, part-time school for my older one. Um, you know, it's still less than like 20 hours a week, but it's something, you know, it's something and it, it does count and we just make it work, you know? Yeah, no, it's amazing. And I think so many parents right now, that's, they're in the same boat, right? Especially with COVID or their jobs have moved at home and childcare, um, so yeah, I think that's really insightful too. And just like the, the grace too, to just extend that time if you need it and, and being okay with the limited bandwidth. So, cause I, yeah, I kind of totally underestimated myself going into this season of motherhood with two of like, I was like, great naps. We'll get that again. Nope. Just like you said, yeah, I need there's to spend no it with break my daughter. Nap time. Nope. <laughs> and, yeah. Yeah. And so, wow, that's really interesting. Well, what's your favorite aspect of motherhood before we kind of move into the nutrition? I just am curious. Oh, um, gosh, it's kind of hard to say. There's so many things that are, I think different stages have different highlights and and different challenges, of course, right? Let's keep it real. Um, I think one of my favorite things is, is watching the like developmental trajectory, like watching them meet their milestones. I mean, all the way from infancy, from just like being able to hold their head up for a little bit longer and start rolling over and the babbling and the smile that finally comes out at like six weeks or so, you know, like those sorts of things are really just incredibly cute. Um, Certainly I've, I've been very grateful to have had a relatively smooth breastfeeding experience with both kids. I mean, although I'm at the point where I'm definitely <laughs> less yeah. Yeah. enamored with it, you know, nursing a toddler is a whole different ball game than nursing this like cute little snuggly, not kicking you in the face infant. Um, but I still am grateful that we've been able to have, you know, such a long journey And then, yeah, just watching all the stages of development, the starting to talk and put words together and then sentences and then watching them come up with their own stories and their imaginative play. And it's really fun to watch. Just, you know, get to know your kids, see, see what makes them tick. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, 
just recently, my daughter, she's three and a half. She started the more imaginative play and like by herself. And it's been so fun to see like the little stories she makes up. It's, it's pretty fun. Yeah. So cool. So you're okay. So you're a registered dietitian. Can you tell us like more about your background? What led you to nutrition and where you're at today? Yeah. So, I mean, I've had a a lifelong interest in nutrition. I grew up in a family that was fairly health conscious. Um, Not that it totally aligns with everything that I talk about now, but they tried to, you know, keep, we didn't have soda in the house and we didn't have sugared cereal in the house kind of a thing. Um, And so that was definitely, you know, instilled in me and in a young age, like the importance of not eating a bunch of processed junk food, you know, and we would have it every once in a while and we'd realize that we didn't feel very good. Right. So, mm-hmm. um, sort of this mindful eating and awareness of ingredients, uh, was, was something that I was aware of from a pretty young age. And I knew I wanted to study nutrition pretty much by the time I was in high school and did not wow. um, change that, that choice in college. Um, and I was really lucky to have been exposed to this sort of ancestral real food nutrition side of things with an internship I did prior to college, actually, um, and got exposed to the work of Weston Price and the Weston mm-hmm. Price Foundation. Um, so this was like before paleo nutrition was really a, a thing, Um And that definitely colored the lens through which I interpreted all the information I was exposed to in my like formal dietitian undergrad. Um, So, you know, I was aware like, okay, there's like industries that are, you know, making sure that this gets in the textbook and there's certain Mm -hmm. information that's like not in here. Wait a second. I have access to the medical journals so I can look this up and see like, is what Sally Fallon said actually accurate (laughs) in like nourishing traditions or not. Um, So it was definitely a, I guess a bit of a different um, experience in that I was kind of like aware of this stuff Mm -hmm. going into school. And I use school as an opportunity to kind of explore some of these topics. Um, by the time I like did my dietetic internship and was out in the field working, I had the opportunity to work in a variety of prenatal spaces. Um, so working, you know, under a perinatologist, mostly doing gestational diabetes and high risk pregnancy education to working with the California diabetes and pregnancy program, which focuses on, as the name suggests, <laughs> diabetes and pregnancy. So a lot of gestational diabetes. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's really what, where I feel like I found my calling, this sort of understanding that we can make a really big difference in not only a woman's pregnancy and birth outcomes and all of that, but the health of her child for the rest of her life. Um, that, that was big to me. Um, it was also a time that I was seeing like, okay, I've worked on these guidelines and now I'm working in practice using those guidelines and, they're not working as well as I would expect. Like there's Mm -hmm. definitely room for improvement here, which has led me to a place of really kind of being an outspoken critic of those guidelines and pointing out like, Hey, you say we need this. And yet this new research suggests we need this amount or we need 
this instead, or this is not in the right balance or whatever. And so my work has kind of now shifted towards pointing out where those gaps lie and how we can improve them. And although I am, you know, hopeful that someday our guidelines will shift, I, I am a realist and I have worked in the public policy space and understand the many, many limitations there are to making this sort of level of change. I mean, they need to be completely flipped on their head. We're not talking about like some minor little adjustments. Minor little adjustments are a great start, but at the rate in which we make changes to our dietary guidelines, that'll take like 30 years. So that's why my work really is like, let me get the information into the hands of moms and healthcare practitioners directly. You make the change, you see how it works, Like you don't have to wait 20 years, 30 years for the guidelines to change and your reproductive years are over (laughs) or your career as a health practitioner is winding down. You can implement this stuff now. So let me just make it accessible in the form of my books, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes Mm -hmm. and Real Food for Pregnancy and see where it leads us, you know? Yeah. Why do you think it is so outdated though? Or like what what makes it so slow for conventional wisdom to kind of catch up with the research? It's a good question. I don't, I don't think there's a really clear answer. Mm-hmm. So, you know, on one hand, we know the the research suggests it takes about 17 years for new research to make it into clinical practice. And of course, from clinical practice to guidelines, that's going to take even longer. So that's one factor. Mm -hmm. There's always going to be a delay. The other factor is our guidelines were really made on incomplete evidence and a lot of assumptions. And even though those assumptions have been proven wrong with new data, there's a lot of resistance to changing those things, whether that's from the policymakers themselves, who, by the way, are often not working with clients anymore. So they're like disconnected. They have a different view um, and or they're so entrenched in like, this is how it's done, that they're unwilling to see anything different. I mean, for example, you know, the guidelines suggest we eat 45 to 65% of our calories from carbohydrates. This is not a good thing for the vast majority of people's physiology. Um, And yet this totally outdated, disproven assumption that saturated fat is artery clogging, which is the big resistance to going lower carb, because you go lower carb and you eat more fat and you eat more fat and some of that fat's going to be saturated. And oh no, if it goes above the 10% of calories that we have allotted to saturated fat, we're going to like cause heart disease or cause some sort of problem. And they, they simply cannot even entertain the possibility that actually the saturated fat does not cause heart disease, which has been shown in many, many high quality studies. Right. So but many it's studies. just like you some of these things are very, very difficult to break because it is the, the whole foundation really of our guidelines and really conventional dietetics is about keeping saturated fat as low as possible. So when you have people who are un, unwilling or unable to like take in this new information, of course, they're not going to change the guidelines. 
And then probably the third thing is special interests. You know, you have the food industry and, and whatnot lobbying for various things. That's why we have this, you know, sugar sweetened beverages make up such a huge part of the diet because a lot of the research on the detriments of sugar were intentionally suppressed um, from the public. It's been all sorts of exposés on that. Um, So they have a huge, you know, they're some of the biggest contributors to the the dietetics organizations. Um, And they contribute a lot to the people who work on these various platforms. So even if you do have a few people really pushing for change Mm -hmm. who are unbiased and, you know, unaffected by industry influence or sponsorship or lobbying, it's still a huge uphill battle to change things. I mean, and things have changed, but they've changed very slowly. Um, And sometimes some of these changes are not publicized very much, such Mm -hmm. as removing cholesterol from the nutrients of concern that was done like over five years ago and like, it wasn't publicized. So it's just very quietly taken out of the American heart association that you need to limit your cholesterol intake and limit your egg intake. Right. Which, but but the messaging press release. Yeah. And the the messaging does not change. The messaging is still low fat, which by default is low cholesterol, but like you can have a few eggs a week now and it's okay. You know? Okay. Yes. Yeah. And I think especially of the older generations too, right? Like that messaging was so strong that they're, it's just in their minds. Like this is how it is for the general public. Um, and so I think that's hard to change as well. Um, yes. you mentioned a couple minutes ago that just the ramifications of, you know, gestational di- diabetes, but also nutrition and how that can have a long-term impact on your kids. And we know that's, we talk a lot about epigenetics in our community, but can you define epigenetics and why actually what we eat, especially in utero is like so important for the future generations. Yeah. So epigenetics refers to how your environment or various exposures, whether it be to positive influences, like getting enough sleep and enough light and enough nutrients or negative experiences, like being exposed to toxins or excessive amounts of stress can impact the expression of your genes. So your genetics are inherited, but the expression of them can be influenced by these various exposures. And the earliest this goes back is to pregnancy and arguably preconception with both your mother and father. Um, And that can have a long lasting effect on your health. So with the diabetes example, if a mother has elevated blood sugar during pregnancy, so I would call it poorly managed gestational diabetes, Mm -hmm. not getting appropriate care and blood sugar is regularly out of range. That child can face anywhere from a six to 19 fold increased risk of type two diabetes or obesity by the time they're a teenager. So That's huge because this is something that we can have a massive, massive influence on with lifestyle changes. So if you are able to maintain your blood sugar for the most part in the normal range, a few highs is really not a big deal. Mm -hmm. Any, any pregnant woman is going to have a few highs. Um, But we're talking about consistent spikes, really extreme spikes. If you're able to avoid those, which is very much avoidable 
for the most part with diet and lifestyle, sometimes you, you need a little extra help of insulin and medication, but for most cases, we're talking lifestyle and food. That risk is essentially the same as somebody, you know, with a quote unquote normal pregnancy. So mm-hmm. that's only one example. You can give dozens of other examples like, you know, the research on choline. If you get sufficient amounts of choline, especially on the at the higher end, much higher than what the current recommended intake is, those children in toddlerhood have faster reaction time than the kids who got just at the level of like the recommended intake. Same, same thing for things like vitamin B12 and vitamin D. And, you know, there's a lower risk of dental enamel defects in children born to mothers who had sufficient intake of vitamin D during pregnancy. So these are all things where we just think like, oh, I got bad genes. My bad teeth are from my family. Well, sure, they, they could have been, but there's also some epigenetic influence there as well. Was your mom deficient in vitamin D? What was her diet like? Well, you know, mm-hmm. um, those things can have carryover influence. Mm, yeah. It's really empowering. I think to think about that, our decisions right now actually impact our kids. And I think there's such a big disconnect in that, especially in the nutrition space. And so, um, yeah, so let's talk about what foods really build a healthy mom and a healthy baby. You wrote a book called real food for pregnancy. Um, what, what is real food for those listening that are unfamiliar with your work? Yeah. So real food, people have all sorts of different definitions. Um, mine really centers around food that is for the most part in its whole and unprocessed form, or at the very least not processed in a way that removes nutrients. And I think most people will look at this from the like whole grain white flour analogy, which is a valid analogy, but I take it a step further in that we need to look beyond just whole grains and refined grains. We need to look at all our food sources and that includes animal products such as eggs. So eating an egg with the yolk as it comes in nature provides a different array of nutrients than if you just eat the white. Most of the choline is in the yolk. Mm -hmm. Egg yolks are the number one source of choline in our diet. So if you're taking out the yolk, sure, you're throwing away the cholesterol, which we used to think was like, uh, you know, a positive health thing. You're also throwing away all the choline and you're probably going to be choline deficient as a result. I mean, that's just the fact of life. Um, Same with, you know, whole fat versus low fat or non-fat dairy products. Like milk comes with fat for a reason. There are important nutrients in the fat, especially the fat soluble vitamins that can improve your absorption of minerals and other things. So you don't want to be throwing away the fat chicken with the skin. It comes with the skin. It comes with organs. It comes with bones. Traditionally, we used all parts of the animal and you didn't throw anything away. So there's a different array of amino amino acids, some of which have important um, roles in pregnancy specifically found in the skin, bone, and connective tissue. So I would argue it'd be better to cook a whole chicken or at least like a chicken broken down into all its parts, right? Mm -hmm. So you have like chicken thighs and drumsticks and wings and whatnot. You eat the yummy, crispy skin. It's fine that it contains fat. Then you save the bones and make bone broth. You get even more nutrition when you're doing it that way. And you also save the organs and cook the organ meats. They have also a different nutritional breakdown 
than the muscle meats or the skin and other parts. Um, and that's really how traditional cultures approached food. Things didn't go to waste. They might not have known it was for a nutritional reason, but we know now that there's right. a nutri- difference in the nutritional makeup. So really that's my look at food is looking a little more higher level, a little broader. Um, and it doesn't mean you have to eat 100% perfectly just that way, but just trying to make the majority of your diet coming from these nutrient dense foods, it simply displaces a lot of things that we would consider empty calories that, yeah, they have some energy in them, but they don't have any of the nutrients that really help your body run. Yeah. So not just looking at like what's not processed, but taking it further of how did it actually come in nature and like incorporating all of that. I think it's really powerful. And most of us, I would say millennials and younger didn't like, that's really a foreign concept for a lot of us who are used to compartmentalize. You can buy just chicken breast at the store. And I mean, and bone broth, most of us don't even know what that is. Um, yeah. So what's your general advice then for pregnant women, um, around nutrition, incorporating this real food lifestyle? So it's almost hard to like start at the very, very basics, but first I think it's important to have some semblance of an understanding of like which nutrients are found in which foods. And I really do try to focus mostly on the food and less on nutrients and numbers, um, from a teaching perspective, Mm -hmm. because I think that's easier for people to wrap their mind around. If we're talking about like, how do we meet the micronutrient needs in pregnancy? So like your vitamin and mineral needs, and then build a diet around the foods that naturally have a lot of those things. You're looking at a diet that's relatively higher in protein than most people will eat because your protein rich foods generally are the ones that have your vitamin A and your iron and your zinc and your vitamin B12 and your choline and your vitamin B6 and your folate and like so many other things. So if you can try to build your diet around having a sufficient amount of protein, most of these other nitty gritty nutrient concerns are taken care of by default. So that's probably the most important consideration is getting enough protein And for most women, that's going to look at approximately like 25 to 30 grams of protein per meal, or, you know, at least in later pregnancy, around 100 grams of protein per day. And that we can get into all the nitty gritty and, you know, try to calculate it all out. But that generally is going to get you to a good place. The other really important thing about protein rich foods is they tend to be very stabilizing for your blood sugar levels. So they prevent you from having really big blood sugar spikes. Even if you're consuming foods that do spike your blood sugar, which is really anything that contains carbohydrates, which is just, they're almost ubiquitous in pretty much everything, your grains, legumes, fruit, dairy products. And then of course, anything that has like sugar added to it, or is made from white flour, your oatmeal, pasta, Mm -hmm. et cetera. Um, So having protein alongside those foods significantly minimizes or flattens your glucose spike after you eat them, which is beneficial for everybody, regardless of if you have a gestational diabetes diagnosis or not male, female, pregnant or not, like this is important for everybody, Mm -hmm. but particularly in the context of pregnancy, 
um, becomes really important. And then for those protein rich foods, don't take the fat off. Don't take the fat out of your dairy. Don't take the yolk out of your egg. Don't take the skin out of your chicken. Um, if you're making bacon, use the fat to cook other things like make your vegetables taste good. So you actually want to eat them. And again, it's like by hitting the protein part, a lot of things are simply taken care of. So what does that look like in food terms? That looks like instead of a breakfast that would um, really spike your blood sugar, be low protein and not keep you full very long. So just sort of like the misery on all fronts, yeah. something like oatmeal and juice, um, which is ironically very similar to a meal plan recommended by dietetics organizations for uh, breastfeeding moms. Anyways, um, instead of something like that, if you had a breakfast that was like a spinach quiche with a piece of whole grain sourdough bread and butter, um, and maybe you, you want to have some extra fruit with that, have a bowl of strawberries or something that because you're getting so much protein from your quiche, yeah, your blood sugar is not going to spike very much. You're going to stay full much longer and you're not going to have the crazy blood sugar swing induced, uh, food cravings later on that lead you to wanting to eat a lot of processed food and sugar. Right. Mm -hmm. And then you get into lunch. Hopefully you won't be like ridiculously starving. You might not even need a mid morning snack when you get enough protein in the morning. It's kind of an amazing thing. Once you figure that out, maybe you'll have, I don't know, pick from any option. Maybe you have like a lentil chicken soup or you have a salad with salmon on it, or you have like a, you know, open face sandwich with a mm -hmm. side of, you know, apple and peanut butter. I don't know. I'm just making up things, but just sort of exemplifying, you can have any wide array of things, as long as you're including a solid source of protein at your meal. Um, hopefully there's some vegetables as well. And just pay attention to how your body feels after that meal. You know, if something keeps you full and energized for a few hours, it was probably a good choice, probably mm -hmm. a good one. If it left you feeling super hungry, cranky, like you're going to fall asleep or, you know, starving within an hour, probably wasn't enough food or wasn't the right balance of nutrients. And you probably needed more protein and or fat at that meal to keep you <laughs> sustained longer. Yeah, no, I think that's something I think when people, at least the clients I've worked with, they start to recognize how food actually makes them feel and that they can tie like, oh, I actually didn't feel like I wanted to go sleep for a couple hours after that meal or, you know, I was incredibly irritable. I think that connection is huge that our food actually impacts our total well-being, not just physical health or how much you weigh or, but it can actually really greatly impact our like mind and our mood. Okay. One of the questions I got from our community for you specifically, when I asked them, you know, what questions they had was what about a vegan diet? So especially since we're talking about like high protein and like animal-based products, what is your thoughts on a vegan diet? Well, you've uh, read my book. So I think you probably know my, my thoughts. Um, so I do have a section on this in, um, chapter three of real food for pregnancy for people who really want to dive in. Um, there's a lot of considerations. So I think in, in today's climate, I think everybody is, um, kind of walking on eggshells when they talk about anything, because we want to be inclusive of 
of everybody. And we want to make everything work for everybody, regardless of their choices or mm-hmm. convictions. And honestly, that's where I aim to. I would like to do that as well. But I also have to stay true to the science of it. And the science of it is that there's a lot of different nutritional considerations, not only from a protein standpoint, but from a micronutrient standpoint that you need to take into consideration. So you need to really look closely at what is the micronutrient makeup of tofu and beans and lentils and nuts and seeds compared to eggs and dairy products and seafood and meat and organ meats. And it's a lot different. So I think a vegetarian diet in some cases can be doable. It will require a lot of supplementation. And I cover those considerations Mm -hmm. in uh, chapter three. A vegan diet, I, I don't feel that I can ethically endorse because there's too many things that we don't know yet about nutrition for me to say, yes, 100%, it's going to meet every single thing. All you need to do is supplement with these 10 products at these 10 specific nutrient amounts. I can't say that with confidence. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you why. A lot has changed in the nutrition research, even in the last like five to 10 years for our understanding of pregnancy nutrition. It's always been relatively understudied because ethically it's really difficult to study nutrition and diet in the context of pregnancy because you can't subject a group of women to a deficient diet and any particular nutrient knowing that it could have a potential detrimental effect on their baby. You can't do that ethically. So we actually don't have the data on a lot of things. But a couple of things that have changed in the past few years is we now understand I'll just give three examples. Mm -hmm. One, protein requirements. 2015 was the year that the first ever study that directly measured protein requirements in pregnancy was ever performed. Before then, it was all based essentially on non-pregnancy data. So mostly data on men um, and then adjusted via mathematic estimates for how much the baby needs, how much maternal tissues are expanding, et cetera. And they found that protein requirements in pregnancy were significantly underestimated. We're not talking about 5% 5% off or 10% off, they're 73% too low Wow! in late pregnancy compared to the guidelines. So if your definition of a sufficient protein intake in pregnancy is the RDA, mm-hmm. that's not enough. Another one, B12. They've found that women who are meeting the B12, so-called B12 requirements of the RDA were still deficient. They actually needed three times the amount of B12 than the RDA is set at. Same for nursing, by the way. Choline. The data on choline, first of all, choline is like the newest nutrient to be considered essential. It was named essential in 1998, and that data was all based on men. So it's all an estimate how much we need in pregnancy. We have now had studies where they randomized two groups of women, one to get actually more than the recommended intake. And the other group got more than double that amount. And in that study, it was found that the ones who got more than double the recommended amount, their babies had better brain development, better reaction time, better everything at every time point that was tested. And that was with a double dose of choline than what we thought was necessary. Wow. 
Now, B12 only found in animal foods. Yes, you can supplement it, of course. That's always going to be the rebuttal. And that one, definitely. If you're going vegetarian or vegan, definitely supplement. Choline, you can also supplement with. How many people are, though, since most are not aware? It's not in most prenatals. It's too mm-hmm. bulky. It takes up too much space in the capsules. So you'd have to have a prenatal that has like eight or 10 capsules a day to get enough choline along with all the other nutrients. There are some that do that, by the way, but it's not even on people's radar. And I've never seen a vegan meal plan providing enough choline. They don't even meet the lowest mark of the recommended intake, let alone get anywhere close to the double, (laughs) the double intake. So you would definitely need a choline supplement protein. uh, I'll just leave people to an article I have on protein, um, on, on my website, protein requirements and pregnancy article, because I go through a lot of specific amino acids that we previously thought were so-called non-essential that actually have roles in, in fetal development. Um, so those are three examples. I do have an article also on my website called vegetarian diet and pregnancy, where I go through specifically like the considerations that like some nutrients can be missing entirely. Some nutrients aren't found in sufficient concentrations in plant foods. Some aren't well absorbed. Um, some aren't found in a form that's well utilized. So like, you know, you, you cannot in your body convert plant-based omega-3s into DHA mm-hmm. in sufficient concentrations. And yes, you could do an algae-based DHA supplement. That is definitely a good stand-in if you are choosing not to consume seafood. Um, but this idea that we could just load up on chia seeds and flax seeds and walnuts and be fine is not actually based in the data. Same for vitamin A, you know, we cannot convert enough beta carotene from carrots and sweet potatoes and kale into preformed retinol. And a big portion of the population has genetic differences in the way they process vitamin A, where they're, they process, you know, ninefold less um, beta carotene into retinol than, than we think, and who's testing for those variants, right? Mm-hmm. So some people's bodies based on their physiology, they may, may be able to handle it um, better than others. But some people might handle it worse than others because of unknown, untested genetic differences. So I know I went on for like a really long time, but it's a complicated question with a complicated answer because there's too much that we don't know. You know, Mm -hmm. even if you supplement things together or supplement nutrients that are missing in food, a lot of these nutrients are found together. So in food, choline almost always comes along with DHA and choline enhances the transfer of an incorporation of DHA into the fetal brain to optimize fetal brain and vision development. If you're taking an algae-based DHA supplement and no choline, or maybe you're taking choline, but it's not in the same form found in food, or it's at a different time of day, does it have that same effect? I don't know, because we don't have the data on it, right? So there's a lot of guesstimates where it's like, yes, we can do the best that we can to optimize things, but I don't know if it'll come close. And if you're vegetarian instead of vegan, a lot more things will be filled in nutritionally with eggs and dairy products. Um, and especially if you're willing to bend the rules just a little bit and incorporate some other nutrient dense foods, um, you might be totally fine. A vegan diet, I feel much less confident on like, yes, absolutely. We can do this perfectly. Uh, I have a lot, there's just a lot of red flags. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it seems like 
the real question is what does our bodies need at the base level, right? That's the study of, you know, nutrition, right? What do we actually need? How do that, how's that being absorbed and that fuel working in our bodies? And it's, we want the foods, especially for pregnancy, right. And building our kiddos that will actually do that work. And so it's less about, I don't know, well, it's definitely less about a trendy diet or, you know, even ethics around food, but like, how does the body actually work mechanically? And, and I think that's what you're sharing is mechanically, we need all these things. And it's really hard to get that from a vegetarian or strictly vegan diet. And then just how, how is your well being going to be? If you're like a recent, if you recently transitioned to a vegan diet, you will still likely have decent nutrient stores of a lot of these different nutrients. So it'll take time for those to deplete and you might be uh, better off than somebody who's been vegan for like 12 years and is now um, going through pregnancy because your nutrient reserves are already low. But how are you going to feel postpartum? Mm -hmm. How's your recovery going to go? How's your milk supply going to be? What's the micronutrient content of your milk going to be? Yeah. It's an unpopular conversation to have because you get into a lot of hot water over like nobody wants to discourage breastfeeding and make mothers feel like their milk is supposedly inadequate. I'm not saying it's inadequate. I still think breast milk is a you know vital food for babies. However, it does not, we cannot deny the fact that nutrient levels in breast milk are reflective of maternal intake and nutrient stores for a number of different nutrients. I mean, I teach a 90 minute webinar on this topic, going through all the different nutrients and how they're, yeah, maybe you saw that one. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay. I mean, I was even told by a really wonderful IBCLC that like, oh, it doesn't matter what you eat. Your milk is, is the same. And like, you're still going to make probably a sufficient amount of milk. It's probably going to be enough calories. It's probably going to have, you know, enough fat carbs and protein. It's probably, it's going to have all your antibodies and human milk oligosaccharides and those things. It's still going to have that, but like the B12 levels will likely be lower and the DHA Mm -hmm. levels will likely be lower and the vitamin A levels will likely be lower and iodine levels will likely be lower. Like there are micronutrient differences Mm -hmm. um, that can be actually quite substantial if you are really, really depleted. And I actually do see a lot of women who are really, really, really depleted. So there's a lot of considerations. Totally. Well, what would be like, especially for someone who's newer to thinking about food in this way. Um, and you know, I just think we're so food confused in our nation. It's just like, we have no food culture generally, and it's all over the map trying to figure out what to eat and how to be healthy has become just such a complicated topic. I feel. And like, um, many of us have tried different like crash diets or different things like that. And So what would you say to like, make it super simple? What can like a mom do? Like she's just found out she's pregnant. What are some of like the best, I mean, you've already talked a little bit about it, but like overall to like kind of take some of the fear out of it and make it simple. What would be your advice, especially to like how to do it in a, maybe a budget friendly way as well. But like, Cause I know that's also a consideration where many women are like, well, it's too expensive to eat healthy. So, um, can you just give us some like guidance around that? What you would say to a new mom? 
Sure. Yeah. And I actually have an article coming out on um, budget-friendly prenatal nutrition um, pretty soon. So, you know, there's, there's various different levels of like budget-friendly food accessibility. Do you even have access to a kitchen or regular transportation? I mean, there's like, there's like levels of, of where this conversation um, can go. Certainly, um, from a budget-friendly accessibility perspective, I would throw any concerns about like buying organic pasture-raised blah, blah, blah out the window and just try to focus on buying foods with like the simplest ingredient list you can. Like mm-hmm. we can go all the places on, you know, pesticide residues, all those things, right? There, there's a time and a place to talk about that. And due to the nature of my, my typical audience at this stage, people do want to have that information, but yeah. it's when your when your basic needs are not being met, like just from getting enough energy from food, that's not the time and the place for that kind of a conversation. So I would be focusing on a, what's like available and accessible in your area you can talk from like, you know, shopping at the least expensive grocery store, getting used to kind of reading some ingredient lists to try to just buy the stuff that's like less processed, less full of additives and junk. Some people have accessibility to buying direct from a farm or like hunting and fishing themselves or buying, um, having backyard chickens or buying chicken eggs from a neighbor. You know, I can get great pasture-raised chicken eggs for like three bucks a dozen, which is about the same as the regular conventional eggs at the grocery store, right? But the pasture-raised eggs at the grocery store, sometimes like five, six, seven, eight, nine bucks a dozen. Yeah, I'm like eight, nine dollars. Yeah. Yeah. So some of that stuff is like, you know, depending on what's going on in your area, if you're in a more rural area, you might have more accessibility to buying um, direct from farmers where you just cut out the middleman. So everybody, everybody wins. If you're doing most things at the grocery store, um, I would really try to like, look at it from the perspective of like, what is most important. And as I talked about earlier, hitting your protein requirements is arguably the most important Mm -hmm. because that's really where you're going to hit the mark for most of your micronutrients. So that would be looking like, buy eggs, even if it's the conventional eggs, don't throw away the yolks, buy the whole eggs in the shell, not the like liquid cartoned egg whites for more money. You get less nutrition and it costs more. So buy the whole eggs, Um, full fat dairy products, larger containers are much less expensive than the individual little yogurts or the pre-cut pre-sliced cheese, like start looking at, you know, cost per pound and those sort of considerations. (laughs) Look at meat that's on sale buy the cheap cuts of meat, like chuck roast makes a delicious pot roast, pork shoulder makes a delicious um, pulled pork. And they're much less expensive than buying like pork chops or steak or other things. Buy ground meat in bulk. Um, If you can, meat is on sale, buy it when it's on sale, freeze it. So you have that available. You can buy direct from a farm and do like a, you know, cow share, pig share, sometimes, especially nowadays with food prices where they're at, it's often less expensive to buy direct from the farm via a meat share than it is to buy the conventional ground beef at the grocery store. It's kind of wild. 
So there's all different ways that you can slice it, but I would be putting more of my budget towards the protein rich foods, incorporate beans and lentils in there too. That's a really, really inexpensive source of protein, different amino acid breakdown than meat, but you know, um, whole cuts of meat, like doing chicken and making like a roast chicken, save all the leftover bits and bones to make broth. Don't buy the $10 carton of pre-made fancy bone broth at the health food store. They're making a killing on this. That's oh my gosh. All I the know. Scraps. It's free. Anyways. And it's so easy to make, right? Like it's we so make easy. ours in our Instapot and it's yeah. so easy. Do it in the Instapot or slow cooker. If you don't have a slow cooker, a lot of thrift stores have them for like five bucks. I mean, I'm talking about all this stuff, but at the same time, all of these things I'm talking about require kitchen skills, Mm -hmm. which a lot of people don't have. And they also might not have the time, especially if you're working like three jobs to try to make ends meet, it gets hard. And so that's where you want to start thinking about things like beans made in the slow cooker. It takes like 24 hours on low. Your bone broth, slow cooker, 24 hours on low, like pot roast, pulled pork, um, lentil soup, like those types of meals that like don't take a lot of prep time become important, but still some of this requires like cooking skills. Right. So I don't know if I answered your question. I think, I think it's sort of like a, a bit of a two-parter, like where to get started in the budget-friendly conversation, because it's kind of a different conversation, but I would like a lot more of your food budget to protein rich foods and like less of it towards produce. I don't want to like have people not eat fruits and vegetables. Those are important too, but they don't fill nearly as many of the nutrition gaps as the meat does. Moreover, if you are receiving any sort of supplemental assistance like WIC or SNAP or any of those, those often do not cover your animal foods. They'll cover eggs and dairy products and canned fish and beans, um, but they don't cover meat specifically. And so like you can maybe meet with the people at WIC to see which of those items you can get using your WIC benefits and then use your discretionary funds on getting some more of those animal foods that are unfortunately not covered by their program because God forbid they have so much saturated fat and they don't fit the dietary guidelines. Right. So, (laughs) so sometimes you can get creative with like what's available from here and what's available from there. And, you know, it's so hard because every person who's, who's in a situation of needing to think closely about like budget or food insecurity or accessibility, there's like such a huge range that it's hard for me to like answer that's appropriate to every person possible who's listening in this situation. It's like, you kind of have to pick and choose from. Totally. um, It's a much bigger conversation. Yeah. Yeah. No, but I think that's such a good like guideline just to focus on the proteins, even just like starting with this. If I can focus on my pregnancy, how do I make sure what's on my plate? I'm getting enough protein in like what you're saying is that's going to get so many so much more of those nutrients, those key nutrients that are needed, both for mom and baby. And arguably Um, that will take the place of a lot of dietary supplements as well. So like if you're eating 12 ounces of fish per week, even if your fish is like some canned oysters and canned sardines and canned salmon, and maybe mm -hmm. an occasional can of tuna, you don't want a ton of tuna, but like some tuna is fine. Even if that's 
like all the seafood that you're getting. If you're getting about 12 ounces a week of that, you don't need that extra like 30 plus dollar DHA supplement. Yeah. So that counts for something. You know what I mean? If you're getting a sufficient amount of eggs, you don't need that extra $30 choline supplement every month. So if we can fill in those gaps with food, you can save in other places as well. Yeah, no, that makes so much sense. Well, what are like three of your, or two or three of your go-to meals for your family? Oh, well, it depends on who's in a picky eating phase or not. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Gosh. So most days we have some form of eggs for breakfast. Um, Whether that's just simple, like eggs, over easy. Um, we often like saute some vegetables with it, throw the eggs on top, or sometimes we'll make a quiche mm-hmm. some days that's paired with, you know, some yummy like bacon or, um, breakfast sausage. I do make my own bread. That's another thing you could do to save money, but that is a skill set that like mm-hmm. it takes time and you have to want to do it. Right. But for raw ingredients, make a really great quality loaf of bread for probably like $2. That would be like an $8 loaf of bread at the fancy grocery store. Right. So if you want to do that, that's an option. So, um, that's a pretty typical breakfast for us for lunch. I'm big on like cooking in bulk and doing leftovers. I don't like cooking every single meal. So it's usually some type of leftovers, which might be like a soup or a stew. Like if I make a pulled pork for dinner with like coleslaw and roasted sweet potatoes, that will be leftovers for a few days. Um, And then dinner, usually something similar. So I try to plan my meals around like what's the protein going to be and then what kind of produce or starchier vegetable would like work Mm -hmm. well with it. So this time of year, I'm big on soups and stews because it's just so easy and you can use up everything in the fridge. So, you know, it could be like a bone broth based, uh, you know, chicken, vegetable, lentil soup or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, maybe I'm a little bit unusual in that, like I get tired of eating the same thing over and over. So I don't, I don't really go into my like week with like a strict meal plan or we have this on this day it's kind of like, I'm in the mood for Korean beef bowls. Let's do that. And then I don't make that for a couple of weeks because I'm tired of it. And then like, I'm in the mood for meatloaf. Let's do our sheet pan meatloaf with all the fix-ins. And then I'm tired of that for a while. So we switch over to doing something different. Um, So it really depends day to day. That's great. I always need to get out of my rut for my poor family. Like I just get into the mode where I do like, I can eat the same thing over and over. And so, but my poor family, like we need creativity. (laughs) So I'm always looking for new recipes and ideas, but something that's so easy, right? Just put it in the Instapot and leave it. So, wow, this has been so helpful. I want to know, especially since you're kind of on your your last phase of breastfeeding. And I Mm -hmm. am just like in my new journey of breastfeeding with baby number two, what advice would you have for like moms who are breastfeeding, just even just to go as long as possible, or just what's your best advice that you've experienced through your journey? Hmm. Gosh. Well, if I go all the way back to the earliest, earliest stages, um, breastfeeding might be like, a 
quote natural or like physiologically normal thing, but it doesn't always come easy and it doesn't, mm-hmm. isn't always super smooth. Um, I personally found for both of my breastfeeding journeys and different women have different experiences that the first approximately two to four weeks were the hardest um, by far. doesn't mean that there were other challenging phases, mm-hmm. but different people have different issues and it wasn't a latch issue or anything like that. It's like hormonally, my nipples are very, very, very sensitive in the early postpartum time. So nursing is uncomfortable. Um, and one of the times I had a painful letdown on one side. So working with a lactation consultant, which I did the first round, but I didn't feel I needed it with the second was helpful to have reassurance on like whether something I was experiencing was normal or not normal. So like have an IBCLC, have a relationship with one set up already, like at least make a phone call or get on their list or meet with them once or whatever while you're pregnant. So you you know the person already because um, when you need help with breastfeeding, like you need help like two hours ago and like going through another uncomfortable or painful feed, like can feel like life or death situation. (laughs) Like you need help like immediately. Right. Um, so definitely, you know, get some help, but also some reassurance that it does get easier. I felt like once, um, I was through that initial phase, it, it, you kind of get into a rhythm, like just nurse on demand when the baby seems hungry You just stick them on the breast whenever they want not a bad habit. If they nurse to sleep, um, find ways to like make your position comfortable, eat a ton of food. If you're hungry for a ton of food, because you're burning a ton of calories. Um, and then really it's a matter of nursing as long as you want to, you know, not everybody wants to do the whole full term breastfeeding or some people call it extended breastfeeding. Um, and that's, that's a, okay. I felt like I was always you know, when I hit different markers, like I've made it like a month. Yay. Like I made it six months. Yay. You start introducing solid foods and like they, yes, you're still nursing a lot, but like they don't need you as much. There's like food that can fill in in between. Mm -hmm. It's such a relief. Then they start kicking you in the face and pulling (laughs) at your hair and doing nursing acrobatics. And that's its own crazy thing. Like there's just I don't know, just try to roll with it because the nursing, um, it's, I think it's overall like a really beautiful experience and it, it builds a really nice relationship with your babies, but it also has some things that just make you like, <laughs> just like laugh and roll your eyes or yeah, get annoyed. And it, it's, it's okay. Just be there for the full experience of it. And mm-hmm. if it's not working for you anymore, permission to change it to something that works for you, you know, as they get older, you can set boundaries around, you know, nursing when they're two years old, um, versus like when you're in that early, early newborn phase and they just like need you constantly. It's like, oh man, but it too shall pass. Like it's all, it's all a phase and you'll actually probably forget most of the hard parts. So the hard parts won't seem as hard in hindsight. Mm. It's really good feedback. Um, yeah, I know there's just all these ro- roller coasters. I'm like, I made it two months because with my daughter, we we didn't really make it very far. And so we had latch issues. And anyways, oh. we figured out those with my son. So it's really fun. I like what you were saying too, celebrating those milestones. 
is yeah, really congratulations important. for making it two months. It's like every day is like a milestone. You know, I remember <laughs> yeah. like texting with one of my friends early on. We both had babies born about a month apart. She's like, how's, how's nursing going? I'm like, it's, it's touch and go, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and even though I felt really strongly about continuing it. And like I said, like there actually weren't latch issues. Like the nipples weren't damaged. It's just very, very sensitive for me yeah. early on. And not every woman has that experience. Um, it was just touch and go. Like, I really wish that I was in like a village right now where there was like another breastfeeding yes. woman who could wet nurse my daughter. So I could just get like a break, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but again, it's a phase and it passes and it's, it's so nice to, you know, any, every single day they get nursing is, is a benefit, whether you make it a few days or, a few weeks or a few months or a few years, you know, hats off. It's, it's, it's work, you know, it's a lot of work. Mm. Wow. Well, thank you. That's just really, it's great. It's great to hear from a mom who's like been through it, you know, is going through it currently and yeah, it's uh, really encouraging. And thank you so much for like all you've shared today. It's just really insightful. And I just think, what you're doing is making waves. And I'm excited for this next generation of moms who will have more tools in their tool belt and more knowledge and understanding. And for their kiddos, um, we'll have a better future. And so I just, what you've shared is invaluable. And I will get those, um, those articles and put them in the show notes too. So if anyone wants to kind of dive more into that on the protein and even the vegetarian diet, um, our prenatal diet you mentioned, we'll put those down below. And then where can people find you? Because you have so much research you share with the public um, on your social media. And then you have a couple books and you even have a course, right? For those who have gestational diabetes. Is that correct? Yeah. I always forget to mention that one, but yeah, I have, have several things going on. So first off, you can find me on my website. That's lilynicholsrdn.com. That's where you can find, you know, over 250 plus um, blog articles, like some of the ones we mentioned today. You can also get the first chapter of Real Food for Pregnancy um, as a downloadable for free if you want to just get a taste of this whole real food thing that I'm talking about and see if you can handle my writing style or if you hate it. (laughs) That's a good place. Like, there's no uh, commitment, you know, you could just get it and you can. (laughs) you know, unsubscribe right right away. If you never want to hear from me again, very low stakes. Um, As for social media, um, I'm most active on Instagram, which is at Lily Nichols RDN. So it's the same as my website. I have several things going on. You know, I have two, my two books, the real food for gestational diabetes and real food for pregnancy. Um, you can find those on Amazon or where books are sold. I also sell real food for pregnancy and my um, e-cookbook over on my my own shop. And you could get the e-cookbook for free when you purchase a paperback. Awesome. So that's definitely something to check out. That all is linked out on my website. I have an online course for women with gestational diabetes. This is really um, intended to be like a, a client uh, level course. So walking you through everything to do, three plus weeks of meal plans. We have a supportive Facebook community. I answer office hours in there every week. So it's been really nice to watch this grow year after year and and continue to to get feedback from women. I mean, it's almost like they're working 
one-on-one with me on some level because I can interact with you um, on a weekly basis in the Facebook group. So that's, that's definitely something to check out if it applies to you. You have lifetime access too. So if you get pregnant again and are concerned about your blood sugar, um, you can always chime in and rejoin us there um, in the Facebook group. Uh, As for professionals, they do have professional level webinars over at the Women's Health Nutrition Academy. So um, several that we've talked about today would, you know, apply. Um, These generally are geared towards professionals, but I do have a lot of moms who watch them anyways. So if you're kind of like nutrition nerd level, um, you're in good hands. They're, They're meant to go more in depth than my books and other resources, even if they're on topics that I've touched on in other books um, and other places. So I have like one on gestational diabetes, another on prenatal nutrition, the breastfeeding nutrient transfer conversation, vitamin D in pregnancy, postpartum recovery and nutrient repletion, which is super, super popular. Um, Lots of moms I've heard uh, watch that one or definitely not limited to professionals we recently did one on folate and all the different forms of folate versus folic acid they're and how amazing. it's metabolized. So um, a lot of work goes into them and they're generally pretty in depth, but if that's, if that's what you like, then, you know, you'll have a field day. So uh, yeah, many different places. I have lots of freebies on my website too. Um, I really try to have a mix of, you know, access to various levels of content. So lots, you know, plenty of things that are on my blog, people have said, this should really like be its own ebook. And I'm like, but I don't want to put it behind a paywall. Like I want my real food postpartum recovery meals post to be freely available to the internet. I don't even want to have it behind like an opt-in box. Like I just want it out there because nobody's planning for postpartum. And if I can make one woman's postpartum experience better, then I'm happy. So like, this is my my public service offering. Like I don't want to make everything like a product, you know? So um, yeah, many different levels for you to choose from. No. And that is what I love about you and just like your willingness, your generosity with your time. And so for everybody listening, like go buy your books. (laughs) They're so good. Um, We're going to link up all those resources you mentioned um, so that they can be easily accessible um, to our community as well. Because yeah, this, I mean, not only professionally have I been impacted by your work, but even I first stumbled upon real food for pregnancy when I was starting just to study nutrition, going through my program and I was pregnant at the same time. So I just was voracious. I wanted to know everything. And there isn't that much out there for prenatal nutrition. And so, um, it's made such a difference in my own journey with my own kids and my own health and just feeling more like myself postpartum too. Cause you know, that, that could be a conversation all in itself is just oh yeah on, you know, nutrient depletion postpartum and how to like recover from that. And, um, oh, yeah. and so, yeah, I just, for everyone listening, like go, like go listen to, uh, you know, there's, you have other podcasts you've done with other people too. And you know, the webinars yeah, they're just on my press page on my website, there's a bunch of podcast interviews listed list. Yes. Listed. So you can listen to them to them. Yeah. So there's just such, yeah, there's so much out there. And so thank you. And I'm really excited for our community to get connected with what you're doing. Um, and so, yeah, thank you so much for being here with thank us. Thank you. And- 
Thank you everyone for listening to this episode of the Nourish Motherhood podcast, and we'll see you on the next one. Wow. Wasn't that conversation insightful? I always learn something new every time I hear Lily speak. My hope is that if you're pregnant or hope to get pregnant in the near future, that this episode gave you a lot of food for thought. And I know prenatal nutrition can be overwhelming and I want to make your journey easier. That's why I put together a really practical free guide that lays out the best foods you can eat to nourish your body and baby at every stage of motherhood. You can find a link to this free resource in the show notes below. Thanks friend. Have an amazing week and I will see you on the next episode. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the nourished motherhood podcast. Have you connected with us on Instagram yet? If not, head over and follow us at nourished.motherhood. We share advice and tips for your fertility, pregnancy, and motherhood journey, as well as inspiration for happier, healthier living and snippets of behind-the-scenes life in Alaska. Come, let's be Insta friends.